help me out. If we had a proverbial backpack, and in it, we were going to put all the essential things of what you need uh, to live life as a follower of Jesus, what are you putting in that backpack? I'm presupposing, by the way, that faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute must. So outside of that, what are the essential things that we're packing? Anybody want to volunteer? Okay, here, Bible. That sounds like a great answer. What else? Prayer book, okay. Good, what else? What are we putting in there? Like moms and dads, if you're, if you're trying to prepare your kids to walk in a lifetime of faithfulness with Jesus for the long haul and, and walk from, from cradle to grave, what goes in the backpack? Trust, love, fellowship, community. It's interesting because um, a lot of times when you pull the community answer, um, most people that are walking away from the church, from organized, organized religion, um, whatever else, the reason they're walking away is not necessarily because God, the Bible, Jesus has become less believable. It's because the, the community that surrounds them has just become untenable. And so they say, I'd rather do this on my own. So what the challenge that this presents us, and, and by the way, that's not, that's not out of step with where we are as a people and as a society. As I mentioned some weeks ago, the, the church is experiencing um, kind of the ripple effect of what goes on in the society of everyone's living out in their margins. No one's got time left anymore. Uh, we work from home. We have smart devices that connect us to everything. Everything is breaking news all the time, and it's not just a crawl going on in your screen, but it's a buzz going off in your pocket or in your purse. Um, everyone's living off in the margins of their life. And increasingly also, we're uh, becoming much more, um, much more selective, much more homogenized in the groups that we select to be around because we're already exhausted and so we don't have time for people that are going to exhaust us more. So we're very selective about who we're with. I think that if you look at the backpack, it's um, word, prayer. It was interesting that no one actually tossed out sacrament, but we'll, we'll come back to that another day. And community. So it was so vital for, uh, for James that this next part of the letter is where he's getting into why is it that community is breaking down? Why is it that things for you are falling apart? So we want to consider that this morning. Um, turn your Bible to James chapter 4. We'll take verses 1 through 12 and invite you to stand if you would. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's cool. It's printed as an insert for you in your program. where it was. No, it's Mark. That's a different passage. Listen to God's word. 
what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it said God, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, before we hear truth, before we hear ideas, would you stir our hearts with tender mercy, with love and affection, because you love your people. And you've given your word to your people not to crush us, not to demoralize us, but to change us. Because we see that we have no good and no hope apart from you. And we run to you. In these next few moments, speak. For your people are listening. And please remind us all, especially the one who speaks, that you're the one that draws straight lines with crooked sticks. So be near and be present and do your work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Some of us have been considering this fall what it looks like to see the gospel in community. I want you to consider for just a moment what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 21 and following. Jesus, in, in his last 
um, major uh, recorded discourse in the Gospel of John prays this prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. And in it, he prays this. He prays that they may, be all, they, they may all be one, that is his people. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen to the so that. So that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Consider the power of that prayer for just a moment. Consider the implications of that prayer for just a moment. Jesus prayed that the church, the local individual manifestations of the kingdom of God on earth would be one in such a way that it would make the gospel beautiful and believable to people that saw the church. They will know we are Christians by our love. He prayed that the oneness that comes with the people of God dwelling together in unity, as the psalmist talks about in Psalm 133, would be so powerful, would be so lovely, that it would cause the gospel to be both beautiful and believable to the world. It is no small thing that it, it, it is no small thing for the people of God to be mindful of their relationships with the people of God because their relationships with the people of God are more often than not an indicator of their relationship with God himself. James is addressing for us what happens when community fractures? You see, the people of God are called into oneness so that the gospel would be made manifest among us and the mission of God would carry on through us. But what happens when community fractures? What happens when all that starts to break down? What happens when it becomes not about the manifestation of the gospel to God's people and the mission of God's people in the world, but instead becomes turned in, self-serving, self-seeking, and ultimately self-destroying? That's what we're considering this morning in James. If I were to append one idea to the outline that I gave you, causes for conflict and uh, cures for conflict, I would say causes for conflict in community. Did it thrill me that it also had the letter C in it? Yes, it did. Is it a problem that I have? Yes, it is. 
The beautiful life of community is what we began thinking about in chapter 3. Back in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. Be false to the truth. James says when jealousy, envy, selfish ambition exists, there's disorder in every type of vile practice. Dan McCartney says that it's in the community of God's people that this is the place where wisdom from above is to be known, grown, and shown. in and among, working within the context of God's people and in the church. Here's what happens, though. When I become dissatisfied in life, when I become dissatisfied with the way that life is going, what ends up happening is I go into a survival mode by taking what I need in order to subsist. Now, because God has provided for me uh, physically, that means that I begin taking emotionally, I begin taking spiritually from other people because I'm going like a, um, like a wild animal, fearing that I won't have my next meal. I go into a survival mode and start taking. This is, in fact, what James talked about uh, last week when he said this bitter jealousy, this envy, the root of that is to, is to get rather than to give, right? This is what happens when uh, we lose sight of the beauty of God in the gospel, when we lose sight of the fact that we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness in Jesus. And so in verse 1, it's why is there quarrels? Why are there fights among you? The among you is among the people of God. Why is it the community is fractured and has begun to buckle? It is because of this. It's not because someone has an opinion to disagree with. It's because your passions are at war within you. James is giving us symptoms of how we can identify, how we can understand um, whether it is that our hearts have turned in on themselves and we've become selfishly motivated to, to get from people what will satisfy us. And he lists it in stark terms. Look at verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet. And cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. All of this is due to the war between the spirit of Christ and my own selfish desires that are going on in my heart. This is where Jesus said in the Gospels when he was teaching his disciples, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. When you say mean things, when you say short things, when you say, uh, when you say things that are, uh, that are not charitable or gracious to people, when you are argumentative, when you, when you simply call people to give you what you want or just leave you alone, that's not because you just had a bad moment. 
It's because what's going on in your heart isn't right. And you let your guard down. James even says that there will be a, uh, among God's people, there will be a prayerfulness that actually looks, that it actually looks more like prayerlessness. Look at what he says. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I'm not making an argument here, and neither is James, by the way, that you should only wait to pray till your motives are 100% pure. This is not what I'm telling you to do. However, it is something that we should be aware of um, lest we think that whenever we pray, my motives were completely pure. I was just praying that they would lose the argument. We fight and we quarrel because we have disordered desires. Conflict is born when we are consuming what others have to offer for our own gain. We're using people. We're using people. That's when conflict comes. Right? I'll tell you 10 times out of 10, that when, when Jen and I have a spirited marital discussion, it is likely because I have not gotten my way and am indignant about it and have decided that arguing is the best way to get my way. It's not. But I think it is. There's another way that this can, this can manifest itself. That's why I was interested when Troy talked about the the Duns. If you remember your, uh, if you remember Psych One Hundred One, because we're all just animals. I don't believe that. Fight or flight. Remember it. Some people are predisposed to. Uh, when challenged, when cornered, when needing to survive to fight. Some people, when that kind of adrenaline response kicks in and you're challenged, you're cornered, you're, you're challenged to survive, you flee. The reality is all of us get to both fight and flight at some point. It's just a matter of where you go first. Some people's personalities are to avoid conflict, but if you push them hard enough, they're going to come guns blazing. And some people are guns blazing, but when they find out they're outmatched, they'll run. Here's the second way that we can find community fractured. Because the root, again, we're looking at what is the root. What's the thing going on at the very base, at the very bottom, that causes community to fracture? When it causes community to start to break down. And the, the root thing that James has said is that your passions are at war within you. You don't want to, to serve others. You just want to get for yourself. Well, guess what? When fight or flight takes over, eventually you run away from community. 
You're no longer going to you're no longer going to consume people. You're going to become indifferent to people. You're going to close people off because they can no longer give you what you need or they have proven to be unfaithful or unpredictable and may hurt you. And so you shut yourself off and you become indifferent to people. It's two sides of the same coin. Either way, it's self-protection. It's just a matter of are you being aggressive or are you just shutting down and moving away? That's still a fracturing of community, by the way. And maybe you've not experienced that in the church, but maybe you've experienced that in your own family, perhaps, when there are people that you're just trying to keep the peace with. And so we don't talk about certain things and we don't confront certain issues. And so family becomes incredibly fractured and incredibly weird, especially around this time of year as Thanksgiving's right around the corner and you see all the tropes all the time about how to survive the Thanksgiving table, blah, 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 whatever. It's because we can't have honest and good conversations with one another and we expect people to make us happy. So we either fight with them or ignore them. But James is talking to the church, and he's not incredibly pleased with the idea that it could be, well, I can say that I'm a believer in Jesus, but also I can still use people or ignore people or whatever. I don't need community. I don't need the church. Do you know, do you know what James calls that? Verse 4, you adulterous people. Fornication is having relations outside of marriage. Adultery is having marriage and still thinking you can get the stuff on the side. Jesus is saying, you're an adulterous people to think that you can bear the name of Jesus and yet also go and on the side, pursue the world as you see it any way you want it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. For James, there is no gray area. There is no, there is no middle ground. It is either you are doing things God's way or you're not. There is no sliding scale of I'm mostly doing it God's way, but then some of it my way. James says, that's not the way it works. He goes on in verse 5, and we, there's, a, there's a translation issue that we're not going to get into here and now, but it's a really difficult passage. It's a really difficult verse to translate. The way that ESV renders it, it says, or do you suppose that, no pur- that uh, it is a, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And I've tried, I mean, I've, I went through, I don't know, somewhere in the ballpark of 15 different commentaries and, and exegetical resources trying to find someone, at least two people that would say the same thing. 
Like that was really, at that point, I was just, do I have two people that will say the same thing? Um, and no one really knows exactly um, how it should be translated for a lot of technical reasons. But the essence of what everyone's saying about its meaning is this. God's people are indwelt by God's spirit, and there is no way in which the living presence of that spirit is compatible with sinful yearnings and promptings to self-interest, which are destructive to the peace of the church. There's no possible way that those things are compatible for the spirit of God to be in you and for you to be pursuing things that are destroying the church. It's just not going to work. Jimmy and I recently read an article entitled Beware of the Satisfied Church. The author, Trevin Wax, says this, we crave unity. We want to experience contentment. We want to see the church united by what matters most, what God wants, not what we want. Or better said, we want to want what God wants for our church. But it's easy, the author says, for Christians who have been through a season of conflict or discontentment to pursue peace and satisfaction as the goal. It's easy for churches to imagine that it's a sign of faithfulness when everyone is getting along and everyone is satisfied. It's easy for churches to imagine that it's a sign of faithfulness when everyone is getting along and everyone is satisfied. The problem is it's not, though. And we'll talk in just a minute about what that holy dissatisfaction looks like. That's the problem. We, we're selfish, we're self-interested, we're self-motivated, we're self-seeking. Listen, the, if that path is not corrected, it goes all the way down to self-destroying, right? But there's hope. There's hope. For James, it's the climax of the letter. It's where this whole letter has been going to. It's where we see the gospel. And so in calling this a cure for conflict and community, I don't mean that like some sort of, of medicine salesman thing where just one dose and it'll cure you. What I mean by it is this is the cure. This is the only cure. And every time we see the symptoms reemerge, we have to go back to the cure. Rather than masking or managing or ignoring it, we have to see it, acknowledge it, and go back to the only thing that can cure it, which is the gospel. It is a beautiful thing to read James 4, 6 through 10, as a... Um, as an exhortation to remember and rely on the gospel. It is also tempting to, re- to read that text out of context as an exhortation to, uh, to remember and rely on the gospel in general. The challenge for us is that James is not applying it as the gospel in general. He's applying it 
as the gospel as remedy specifically to all the things that he has said leading up into this point. James is confronting community gone wrong and so calling us to the gospel, the good news announcement of what the king has accomplished. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. If the searing indictments of everything that he has said from chapter 1 and verse 1 up until this point is, is, is you on the page, he says, but wait, there is grace. He gives more. There's more grace in him than there is sin in you. He gives more grace. We're not just called to lean on grace abstractly. But in an attitude of repentance, come before the Lord, confessing where we have fallen short, and then boldly and confidently trust in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We were made for community. We were made to serve others. We were made to be dependent on both God and one another. And so the antidote to our selfish striving is to look to the one who gave everything for us, to call us back. To, to bring his spirit into us and point us back to how we were designed to truly live in communion and fellowship with God and with one another. And that we would repent and believe and obey Jesus. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, beloved, it is what, what stops us what stops us from running and clinging to that grace is the pride that says, this isn't that big of a deal. This isn't my problem. This isn't my issue. He's not talking to me right now. No, no, no. No, what we hear God saying is that it is the needy one Come and come and receive. Come and know that you've got nothing and Jesus is standing here offering you everything. Pride doesn't get you there. Pride says, I've got it all together. Humility says, I don't have anything together. Dan Doriani says that God did not give us our energy and aspirations to see us pour them into selfish desires. He did not give us our willingness to fight for a cause so that we would spend it defeating others. No, it's the salvation that we have in Jesus that restores our sense of direction. I'll go through this uh, this almost poem that James gives us quickly, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit um, means to arrange our lives under God's direction. Not only does he say, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, he says, resist the devil. So there's a both and. Not only do you submit, do you order your life under God's rule, but you also resist 
the false counterfeit rule of the devil. Resistance may feel difficult, but it's not impossible. I've talked to people over and over and over again, and they'll say, every time you say that I'm supposed to resist temptation, it just feels harder to resist it. Well, yes. Yes, that's true. It's difficult, but it's not impossible because the spirit of the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. Next, it says to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is, beloved, this is covenantal language. There is no other God in the universe that has made a covenant that said he will be our God and and we will be his people like the God of the Bible. It is not Muhammad. It is, it is not any of the Eastern religions. There's nothing else in this world that has said, I have created the heavens and the earth and I have pledged myself to be your God and you my people. This drawing near language is more than repent. When we come near to God, he draws near to us. This is covenantal language. The next phrase, to cleanse your hearts or cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This is that both you are to, we are to bring both our thoughts, our intentions, as well as our actions to him. He wants all of us, not just the church face part of us. He wants all of us. Verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen, we've seen a lot of stuff recently, um, and there's probably more to come, of people that have done shameful and regrettable things in the dark. That Those things have now come to light. And now they say they're really sorry. Can I tell you the difference, though, between godly grief and worldly sorrow? Godly grief is you're sorry and repentant for your sin, even if it's only God that knows you sinned. Worldly sorrow is you're sorry because now the spotlight's on you. If we humble ourselves, if we admit that we sin and that we're sinful, that we cannot reform ourselves, then James promises the Lord will lift us up. This is the gospel according to James. He says there is a choice between two ways to live. We can be proud or we can be humble and repent. And do you know what happens when we're humble and we repent? There is yet more grace there. Verses 11 through 12 kind of close this discourse of James's letter. And it's a reminder that, that, whether, um, that whether in what we do or in what we say, we're to believe the best out about one another and let our speech reflect that conviction. I can't tell you how many times a lot of bad situations would be solved by believe the best about your brother and sister in Jesus and go talk to them rather than assume and presume the worst. So what do we do with all this? I want to go back to um, one more quote from that article of Beware the Satisfied Church. Trevin says this. He says, the satisfied church is not a holy congregation. It may just be a complacent one. 
And he says, this paradox is important. Churches most satisfied in God will be the most dissatisfied with their own spiritual state. They want to see God's name magnified throughout their city and around the world. They will be, they will be dissatisfied, filled with holy discontent over the current state of their church. And they'll be yearning to reach more for Jesus to do more for others, to serve more in his name. We, we don't want churches full of people dissatisfied due to their personal preferences going unfulfilled. Neither do we want churches that are full of people who are satisfied because everything is running smoothly. No, what we want are people who are satisfied with God but dissatisfied with the state of the world because they live and breathe the mission of God. They're driven by the gospel and the mission on behalf of King Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus prayed that my people would be one so that the world would see and that the world would believe. The church becomes impotent when selfishness has fully metastasized as indifference to one another and the world around her. If you ever want to see the church cut off at its knees and lie in the dust, impotent and without a voice, it's when selfishness has fully metastasized to indifference and indifference has paralyzed the church. So what do we do? What do we do? We come to Jesus and we say, my heart has grown hard. My heart has grown hard and I have become indifferent to people. Help me. And that may be you. Maybe maybe you're here today and you fear that you won't be happy without securing happiness for yourself. I want you to hear the grace of the gospel that Christ Jesus has resisted the devil. He has humbled himself and he has given himself over for you so that you would draw near to God. He has said, my life for yours. For those who might be here who are saying, I just can't be happy in the church unless things are just my way. Perhaps today you need to ask yourself the question, if um, if you're just selfishly using people to make yourself happy rather than serving people to make them glad. And maybe if you've just become indifferent to the people of God, Hear Jesus once again, not only praying for his people, but praying for you. I pray that they would be one. You weren't made to do it on your own, and he's not going to leave you alone. You were made for relationships both with God and with his people, and he won't let you have it any other way. Beloved, would that it would be on this day of the Reformation where we don't just look back to a time where stuff happened, that this idea of semper reformanda, this always reforming, is always going back to the gospel. May it be for us this day as a church that we would not be, sati- that we would not be satisfied unless we're satisfied in God and wholly dissatisfied with the status quo.